and born of the Virgin Mary. Now that's the two lines we'll be looking at this morning. Um, But as of um, today, until today, the papers we had handed out to you and the version I had read that's online for the rest of eternity um, went like this, who was conceived by the Virgin Mary. Which doesn't, right, doesn't quite make as much sense. So here's what we did. We actually left the Holy Spirit out of the creed. Which, if you've been around, you know as a pet peeve of mine, I'm constantly like, as Christians, we forget about the Holy Spirit. And we have now done it. And I would love to say that it was a test to see if you guys would come through. But it was not. It was a mistake. So we're going to correct it, though. And it's a great day to correct it because we have arrived here in the creed. So it reads like this in the section on the Son, I believe in Jesus Christ, um, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. So we have now corrected our mistake, um, and we'll now look at this point. We're talking about the Son. We've talked about the Father and our faith in the Father, our trust, our, our belief in the Father. We've started to talk about the Son. Last week, we looked at this first two phrases, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Now what the creed is going to give us for the next few weeks are a few descriptions of the actions, kind of a narrative of Jesus' life, of God the Son in human form, what happened to him. You see the verbs go down if you are looking at it. Was conceived, born, suffered, was crucified, descended, rose, ascended, will come again. We've got these actions, this narrative that, that we'll explore that we say are true about this person, Jesus Christ. Um, we've emphasized all along uh, as we've done the series that when Christians uh, confess our belief, our faith, we're primarily confessing a belief in someone and not something, right? We, we, we don't believe in a fact. We don't believe in some cold, hard truth. We trust in a person, particularly three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so when we look at, at these lines that, that come underneath the I believe in Jesus Christ statement, we should always kind of keep in brackets that first statement. Christians don't necessarily say that we trust that there was a conception by the Holy Spirit and he was born of the Virgin Mary. We say, no, we trust the one who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. We're still talking about our belief our trust in Jesus Christ as we now talk about his birth. We now go into the Christmas story, the story of the incarnation. Um, You get here in the creed and in our passage now all three persons of the Godhead. So this is a a word theologians use to talk about the Trinity. You've got one God, three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, And we say Godhead to refer to all three of these persons at once. And so in the creed now we've got the Father, We've gotten Jesus Christ, and now the Holy Spirit is involved. Now, the Holy Spirit will have his own section here toward the bottom, but now we've gotten all three. Notice also that we now have our second human being in the creed. There are three human beings named in the creed, and I think there's significance in this. The first is Jesus. 
Remember, Jesus, while being fully God, is also fully a human being. And now we have Mary. The other human being named in the creed is Pontius Pilate. I think there's some significance to who gets named in the creed. And now as we look in our text um, where the creed finds its truths from, we'll see the same thing. So in Luke chapter 1, let's pick it up in verse 26. Get some of this Christmas spirit inside of us this morning. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. I feel like if I got that greeting from an angel, I would have interpreted it a little more positively. Mary's a little troubled. She's a little wiser than I am. She's like, okay, that sounds good, but I'm in the presence of the Lord. She is afraid. The angel says, don't be afraid, Mary, for you found favor with God. Behold, you'll conceive in your womb and you'll bear a son. His name will be called Jesus. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, that phrase, Son of the Most High, is used over and over and over again, always in reference to Jesus' divinity, the fact that Jesus is God, the Son in flesh. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What incredible news Mary gets here from the angel, and she has one obvious reaction. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? I don't quite understand how a son's going to come. I, I promise you, God, nothing's happened yet. How is this going to take place? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see here again, the Godhead. God sends an angel. God the Father sends an angel to tell Mary that God the Son is coming into the world. Mary asks how, and the angel says, through God the Spirit. The entire Godhead working here in the incarnation, in the story of Christmas. Behold, the angel keeps going, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now I point out the fact that in the creed and in this passage, you see all three persons of the Godhead. And you see Mary and Jesus named two of these three humans in the um, creed that are named for a reason. I think there's significance for both of them. The first is that, as theologians have looked through the scriptures and thought about God, what we've discovered is that God, while he is existing in three separate persons, is one, is unity. And so whenever God works, he always works together. Does that make sense? The spirit never goes rogue. The father never goes and does something by himself, which is actually important. You might think, how does that apply? Why, why would that be important? It's important because sometimes you'll get a movement maybe of Christianity who says we've received a revelation from the Holy Spirit. But that message might not match up to what Jesus taught in the Gospels. And, and someone who, who is well-versed in the Trinity can go, if that message doesn't match up to God the Son, then it wasn't from the Holy Spirit. 
the Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit reminds us of Jesus' teachings. They're, they're the same God. They don't have different wills. They don't have different ideas. When one is working, they're all working. Now, we also have come to realize, though, that while God is always working together, it is appropriate to talk about the unique roles that the persons of the Trinity play. This came into play early in the Christian faith when some people claimed that God the Father died on the cross. And Christians said, let's stop and think about this. Do we really want to say that? Yes, Jesus is one with God the Father, but they're also distinct. God the Father didn't die on the cross. God the Son died on the cross. Now, they're all involved in this work, right, of salvation and of crucifixion. And so they're all acting together, yet we can talk of their works as distinct. That's why we say that not God the Father conceived the Son in Mary's womb, but the Holy Spirit conceived the Son in Mary's womb. Again, these things are important, and they play out in lots of different practical ways that maybe you never expect. Um, when, when the early Christians said it was important to say God the Father didn't die on the cross, one of the reasons they said that was because they were very concerned to protect God the Father from any type of emotion, from any type of suffering or passion. Um, now, God the Son, after becoming a human being, right, was subject to change and could suffer and could feel pain. But, but they said that's not proper to talk about God in himself, God the Father, outside of time, outside of, of space. Since then, we've become a lot less anxious about talking about God and his ability to feel and to love and to have emotions and, and to be hurt. And so we would say this about God uh, the Father uh, with Jesus on the cross. We'd say, God the Father does suffer when Jesus dies on the cross. He just suffers in a different way, right? Jesus, God the Son, suffers a literal violent death. God the Father suffers the internal emotional death of watching your only son die, of having a perfect relationship ripped apart. They're, they're both suffering, just in, in unique, distinct ways. This is the Trinity. This is how it, how it works. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are always working together. Even here, when Jesus comes into the world, they're all at work, and yet they're all distinct. And you come to Mary, who, who, who Mary is... Mentioned in the creed, and she's mentioned because she's important. One of the reasons the creed mentions humans is it's because it's a reminder that our faith is historical. Our faith is not just these abstract ideas, these general principles or truths. It's, it's based on historical actions. And so when we give names, one of the reasons we do that is to say, it happened then, there, with that person. Right? This actually happened in human history. This was the person it happened to in this place, to these people at this time. These were the people who watched it. These were the people who interacted with it. And so in the creed, you've got Jesus mentioned. You've got Mary mentioned here, the mother of Jesus. And then you've got Pontius Pilate. Now, I've always imagined that Pontius Pilate does not appreciate the fact that he's named in the creed. He's named as the one who's responsible for killing God the Son. I just imagine that Pontius Pilate is somewhere going, look, I was not the only one. I admit it's a big mistake, but there were others involved. I was kind of forced into it. If you read the story, go read the story. I, I kind of I was against it. I kind of was just kind of forced into it. I, I kind of just, 
accidentally stepped into this thing, but he gets named in the creed. But notice Mary and Pontius Pilate, as these two other human beings named in the creed, serve as opposite examples of human reactions to God's activity. When God comes to Mary, Mary says, let it be to me according to your word. She says, yes. And when God comes to Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate represents humanity who sees God at work and says, no, rebels, goes against his plan. They serve almost as two archetypes of our possible reactions to God and his activities in the world. What's happened to Mary is that over the course of history, certain Christians admired Mary so much that she kept getting a higher and higher and higher status. And if you know a lot about church history, the different denominations, um, you, you, you might know a little bit about this. And, and certain people, Mariology became to get really close to maybe worshiping Mary uh, or, or, or praying to Mary and things that made other people uncomfortable. And so like what happens all the time when we think someone's made a mistake, we usually jump all the way to the other side. And so most of evangelical Christians have said, since we're uncomfortable with people elevating Mary that much, we'll just ignore her. We'll mention her at Christmas. But there's a reason that Mary maybe eventually got a little bit elevated too high. Because she is important. She was the mother of our Lord. She is the Abraham of the New Testament. She's the one who accepts the call, who takes this huge leap of faith. She is the model of what it is to be a Christian. For, for God to come and say, this is my son, and say, yes, let it be to me according to your word. So here in the creed and here in this passage, you've got the Godhead at work. You've got Mary um, showing us this, this model of faith. And I want to make two observations and then, and then flesh them out with you this morning. Um, the first is in this passage, um, and throughout history, particularly here in the Incarnation, what we see is the triune God invading the world. Invading a world of sin and death and darkness and rebellion. And the implications of that, I think, are very dramatic. The second thing is that we see God bringing life out of the impossible. Virgin Mary, how can this happen? The angel says, with God, nothing is impossible. Let's start with the second one, okay? Christians through the creeds have often claimed that Jesus was born of a virgin. And over time, that claim has gotten interpreted in different ways. You know, recently, because of scientific discoveries, we feel like we know a little bit or two about how babies are born. Obviously, it's storks. And we go, okay, we, we know that, that there has to be two elements involved here, so it doesn't make sense to believe in a virgin birth. And, and people would further say, look, it's only in two Gospels. Paul, who writes all of his letters before the Gospels are written, and all of his presentations of the Gospels, never mentions Jesus' birth. doesn't seem like it's a big part of the Gospel to Paul. definitely never mentions a virgin birth. And then two of the four Gospels don't mention it at all. And so they say, we, we don't feel comfortable 
that, that makes it seem too unscientific to us. So we, we, we don't feel comfortable saying, I believe in a virgin birth. And then there are others who, who say, no, no, no. The Bible said it. I believe it. That settles it. We're going to take this literally. She was a virgin. It was a miracle. That's how it happened. And then because of that, sometimes that literalness can go further and further and further. And so to further protect the fact that Mary was a virgin, they then start to say, and she was always a virgin. And you go, wait a minute. And you have brothers and sisters. And then, and then to go further from that, you think through and you say, okay, well, Jesus had to be born without sin. He, he wasn't sinful. And so it, maybe it's not enough that Mary was just a virgin. Mary, maybe Mary herself had to be born sinless. And so Mary herself now is born sinless. Mary herself now is always a virgin. Mary herself now doesn't even die, assumes into heaven. And you've taken this literal interpretation of the virgin birth, and you've kind of hammered on it so hard that maybe you've gone a little bit into the field too. And I think this, I think Jesus would respond the way he responded to the Sadducees when they asked him about the resurrection. If you remember this story in Matthew, Jesus goes, the, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the body, which we'll talk about here in the creed. And, and they go, look, it doesn't make sense. What would happen if a woman married seven men during her life at the resurrection? It's going to be awkward. That's my baby. That's my baby. What are you talking about? This is not eternal life. And Jesus responds with the one thing you don't want to hear from Jesus. Remember, he goes, you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. I think that would be Jesus' response here. For those who, who are uncomfortable in our modern era, affirming a virgin birth, I think Jesus would go, you know not the power of God. Right? If you believe in God, is that really too big of a jump now to make? That there could be a miracle that Jesus could supernaturally have been conceived? And then if, if you believe in that and you maybe take that belief too far to protect that and ignore some of the scriptures and ignore um, you know, what, what, what said about Mary and what said about Jesus' family and his brothers and sisters. Jesus might say, you, you don't know the scriptures either. Jesus says, you, you got to understand the power of God. You got to understand the scriptures. And when Christians affirm the virgin birth of Jesus, we do so for a few distinct reasons. And I think I would argue none of them related to the idea that if you don't affirm this, you're not a Christian. We affirm it because it demonstrates to us the character and nature and power of our God. Um, so we know that the earliest Christians had Jewish opponents who tried to discredit Christianity. And one of the ways they did this was they went around and said, Jesus was actually an illegitimate child born to the father. His father was a Roman soldier who took Mary against her will, which is something that happened in the first century. And you can see how this would discredit Jesus. He's an illegitimate child, shady birth there. Not only that, he was actually half of the enemy, the Roman army. He was a Roman soldier. And so the early Christians felt like this doctrine was very important because they weren't going to cede to those rumors, right? They weren't also going to fold though and say, okay, yeah, Joseph was his dad. So they said, no, 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 no. We we're not going to back down from this. There was no Roman soldier involved, and it wasn't Joseph. It was the Holy Spirit who came upon Mary. It was this, this virgin birth. 
And then the other thing that, that you find with the story of, of Mary and, and the historical um, confession of this virgin birth is that it's actually the culmination of one large theme that runs throughout the Bible. The virgin birth of Mary doesn't just appear out of nowhere and leave us going, well, that was odd. It's actually something you might actually expect reading through the narrative of Scripture. So again, when, when I was teaching high school, I taught for a few years the Old and New Testament. So we'd walk through every book of the Bible, and I'd always get this response. Um, I never knew that we would be talking about, and the Bible cared so much about two things. One, circumcision, and two, infertility. That's kind of everywhere in the Bible. So if you're really going to walk through the Bible book by book, going to be talking a lot about circumcision, which is a difficult conversation to explain to a 14-year-old girl who asks you, what is that? Talk to your parents. (laughs) Don't Google. (laughs) And then infertility. Over and over and over and over again in the Bible, there's a barren woman that God brings a child to. God brings life into this infertile womb. It's this theme we find over and over and over again from the very beginning with Abraham, the father of our faith. Sarah was too old to have a child. So just some of the children that you find born out of a barren womb. Isaac was born from a woman who previously had a barren womb. Jacob was born from a woman who previously had a barren womb. Joseph was born from a woman who was previously infertile. Samson was born from a woman who was previously not able to give birth. Samuel was born from a woman who previously was barren. The theme is that God almost um, goes out of his way to make sure people understand he is doing something miraculous. He's specifically acting to raise up a leader for his people to fulfill his purposes. And so when you get to Elizabeth, who has John the Baptist, who's just one more in a long line of people who are way too old to have children. When you get to Elizabeth and then you get to the Virgin Mary, you just get to the top of this roller coaster. This is really almost what all these stories have been pointing towards this whole time. You see this all throughout the Bible. We call it typology or foreshadowing. There are all these little stories that are like echoes of the big story of God and Jesus. So if you think about the Virgin Mary, you have the same story, right? A barren womb that a child emerges out of through an act of miracle, an act of God's hand. But it's, it's not just barren. It's like a barren womb par excellence, right? It's not a womb that's tried and failed. It's a womb that hasn't even been opened. It's, it's like the ultimate of this theme. And Jesus himself is, again, like the ultimate of one of these children that are born. He's not a leader for the people of Israel who will fulfill some of God's purposes. He's the leader of God's people who will fulfill all of God's promises. And so when you you have this virgin birth happening here, you do have this miracle happening. And it's important to recognize because it is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. Mary People, Joseph, in the first century, they knew how babies worked. It's a little arrogant of us to go, well, it makes sense that they believed it then, but now we know a little bit about it. They obviously understood. Mary goes, uh, I don't think that can happen. I hate to explain it to you, God. 
mean, it's the conversation that would have happened back then is the same exact conversation that would happen now. Oh, you're pregnant. How far along are you? Six months. Oh, who's the dad? The Holy Spirit. <laughs> All right, then. Now, while I was researching this, I found that there is one little difference. And when we say we believe in the Virgin Mary, this is not what we mean. But the ancients did believe biologically that it happened differently, which shouldn't surprise us. Science has advanced a lot. We now know that conception is two cells uniting, one from the father, one from the mother, and creating a brand new life. Um, And so sometimes we take that into the Holy Spirit conceiving Mary and come up with this, like, DNA um, understanding of, of Christmas, where Jesus is half God and half human, like he's got half the DNA of, of the, the Father, half the DNA of, of Mary. It's not how it works. The virgin birth is not a biological explanation. It's not telling you anything about Jesus' DNA. He's fully human. He bears all the marks of human DNA, Mary's DNA. Um, but interestingly enough, in the first century, they didn't believe that that's how conception worked. They actually believed that conception was completely the responsibility in the product of the male, even though they blamed the woman when it didn't happen. So they believed that the womb only provided the soil for a man's seed to grow. It was like nourishment, but it was really a plant, right? The man planted it, and then it grew up, and it was from the man. And to the extent that a child represented the mother, resembled the mother, had the same character traits or looked like it, it's just from the nourishment that they got while in the womb. So they wouldn't have even been thinking like that back then, but they still understood, right? Takes takes a male and a female. They realized this is a miracle. It's scientifically impossible. It was impossible back then. It's impossible now. But the angel says, nothing's impossible for God. God is a God who brings life out of impossible situations. And then you've got this triune God at work. You see it all right here in this passage. Sometimes people think, you know, we're, we're playing around too much when we say words like Trinity, and we really emphasize that, right? It's not in the Bible. Why are we doing that? We're doing that because it's in the Scriptures. Because if we hadn't come up with the word Trinity, we'd probably need to come up with a word for it now. I mean, it's right here in this passage. God the Father sends God the Son to be conceived by God the Holy Spirit. All that work rescue and redeem creation. And watch what's happening. God, when he decides to redeem and save and reconcile, does so not externally. Salvation is not a gift that God gives us from across the aisle. That's why we'd say, like, Christ doesn't give us salvation as much as Christ is our salvation. God, to rescue us, comes into the mess. Our God is a God who engages. God invades creation. God sees the brokenness and the darkness and the sin and the death, and he jumps headfirst into it to redeem it from the inside out. This is, this is why our salvation is so complete, because it's the very life of God and God the Son touching the sinfulness and wickedness of humanity and humanity being transformed because of that. That's why the Bible describes salvation less as a a gift we get externally and more of us being in Christ. We're in Christ. Christ is in us. 
His divine holiness and beauty has transformed our ugliness. Why? Because he came close and touched it. There was contact. He bridged the gap. He's a mediator. He represents God to us and us to God. Jesus is truly the bridge between God and ourselves. But we've we've got to see this. This world that the incarnation happens in is a dark, broken, deeply scarred world of pain and sickness and death and war, of politics and empires and lies, of broken relationships. And God, when he sees that, doesn't step back. He doesn't go, gross. He doesn't get the rod out to punish. God sees the mess and he says, let's get dirty. God sees the darkness and he says, I'm going to penetrate it with my light. God sees the sickness and says, I'm going to come and touch and heal. God enters into our brokenness to save it from the inside out. This is the kind of God that we worship, a God who engages, a God who becomes incarnate, a God who reacts by coming close. This is the God Jesus reveals in John 8 when the woman is caught at uh, committing adultery and she's supposed to be stoned. And that's what the law says. That's what the word of God says. She deserves to be killed. Death penalty. And Jesus shows up. Jesus, we were told, reveals the nature of the Father. When we see Jesus, we see exactly what God's like. And when Jesus shows up, he doesn't say, yeah, that's what she deserves. He doesn't shame her. He doesn't blame her. He doesn't lecture her. He's gentle. He's graceful. He's actually a little playful. And instead of, instead of watching her die or encouraging it, which she deserved, he goes, I'm going to do everything in my power to keep that stone from hitting you. This is a microcosm of what God is like eternally, how God has related to the entire creation. And God sees our sin and our rebellion. He did not rear back to hit. He did not turn his back to run. He came straight at it in love to rescue. Our God is a God who engages our brokenness and who can bring life out of the most impossible circumstances. And that's what we mean when we say, I believe in Jesus who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The trying God comes into our deepest and darkest places to transform it. And what seems like the most impossible circumstances are actually the best, um, the best canvases for God to paint his portrait of life and salvation on. So let me flesh this out with you in two ways as we wrap up. The creed, I think, gives us insight and balance. This, this picture in the, the passage in Luke gives us insight and balance and the loving, engaging, healing nature of God. Maybe two, two ways that this might apply out in our lives, and, and you can flesh it out in more ways on your own with your family. Um, so we've been doing this Facebook check-in thing, right? And you check in on Facebook, and during the month of February, we're providing care for kids and compassion. Um, 
and it's actually really cool. I got an email this week from from one of the people who worked there saying like, your church is rocking it. Like, I thought you told us your church was a little church. I was like, we are, but we know how to check in. <laughs> he was like, you both did good work. He was like, are you all seeing any like results? I'm like, yeah, actually, people have actually showed up from Facebook. He's like, yeah, we've hacked Facebook for the kingdom. But if you're on Facebook, you'll see that people are mad. Like everybody's mad. They're angry. Not at me, because I'm a people pleaser. I stay out of it, right? I used to get in it, but no, not anymore. We live almost, I think, in like in a culture where we, even if you might say otherwise, deeply desire to feel outraged, to feel wronged, to want to blame, and to want to shame. I mean, I think it's, it's like a virus we've all caught. Seriously. Go on Facebook this afternoon and look at the first five little news stories that have been shared from people. See how many of them are a negative news story. I'm not, I'm not talking about, is it right or wrong? Are there things in the world that we should be outraged about? Eh, probably. Things in the world that there should be some shame over? Probably. Is there some blame to go around? Yeah, is there some blame to go around? But I wonder if that posture of outrage and shame and blame is the correct posture for a Christian. For someone who believes what we're saying here this morning, for someone who believes there's no situation too dark or too ugly or too broken or too sick for God to heal. In fact, for someone who believes when God sees situations like that, it's not his desire to blame and shame and be outraged, but to come in gently, lovingly, and transform it with beauty and love and healing. Maybe Christians shouldn't be pessimists. Now, what I'm not saying here is, is, is for us to be blind optimists, right? To, to pretend that everything's fine. Blatantly, it's not. What I am saying, though, is that I don't think a Christian should ever lose a firm baseline of hope. I mean, have you read this? Do you come to the table on Sundays? And you're going to find a situation in the world that's too big to say, I believe the trying God is on his way to heal and transform and bring light and life. In fact, you might, I think, if you really let these truths sink into your imagination, instead of getting on, on Facebook or on, on social media or on news or just on your street corner and seeing something wrong and going, this is awful, and you're to blame, and you're to blame, and you're to blame, and you should be ashamed, and I'm outraged, we might go, that's awful. That's where I need to go. That's dark and ugly. But instead of throwing blame and shame and outrage, I'm going to go bring beauty to it. I'm going to embody God's character, God's calling in my life. What you might find actually is those situations you thought were dark look a lot darker when you show up in person. It's It's not a blind optimism to try to engage those situations. 
But it is, I think, the character of Christians called bear the fruit of the Spirit, working on their lives, the character and nature of Jesus. Maybe one way. The, the other way perhaps this plays out in our lives is we all experience and have experienced and will experience and maybe right now are experiencing brokenness and hurt and disappointment and pain and sin and death and destruction. Sometimes it's a season of our lives that we're in. Maybe we've been in, maybe it's coming for us. Sometimes it's just an area in our life. We all know what it's like to go, this is impossible. It's never going to be fixed. There's no way anything good can ever come of this. I've messed this up way too bad. This person has ruined me. They've hurt me way too bad. And we've got to learn how to win that argument with ourselves, that internal conversation. We've got to learn how to let the strength and nature and love and power of the triune God infect our internal dialogue. There's going to be times, I'm telling you, when you feel like a barren woman. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. It's never going to happen for me. And you've got to learn to talk back to yourself. To say, I believe in the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I believe the Father was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a Virgin Mary. No matter how dark what I did was, no matter how bad what they did to me was, no matter how impossible the situation is, God is on his way to transform. I can't have anything but hope. Even if it's a messy hope and a slow hope and a hope riddled with doubt, it's hope. Hope's, I think, one of the most powerful things a human being can have. I believe Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Do you? Let's pray.